The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Uh, as Jesus trains and equips and uh, really runs his disciples through the school of ministry, um, a really important question uh, is who, who they think Jesus is. And not only who they think, but who Jesus truly is. And so at this point in the story, um, Jesus is going to give them a pop quiz. Uh, great pop quiz, only one question, pass, fail. Either you get it right or you don't. And uh, up to this point in, in Luke, this question has not been settled yet. And in fact, as early as back in uh, chapter 7, uh, or maybe chapter 8, I'm not sure the reference, but as Jesus calms the sea, uh, at the end of that event, the disciples are going, who is this? Who is this Jesus guy? And it's, it is an important question. Uh, and why is it important? Well, uh, if... if I, one of the things I like to do when I go teach in villages and teach nationals is I like to ask the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? And if we had time, I could go around and ask and get a bunch of answers. What does it mean to be a Christian? And so right now I'll let you formulate uh, that in your own mind. What does it mean to be a Christian? How would you answer that? Well, typically when I ask it in villages and as I teach nationals around different places, this is the typical answer I get. Well, a Christian is somebody, first of all, who goes to church, right? somebody who gives a tithe, and somebody who tries to be a good person. Right? If they're a fairly literate culture, they'll say, you know, they read the Bible and pray. Right? Now, of course, those are all good things. Uh, Christians should do those things. But is that what it really means to be a Christian? Well, the answer to that question really hinges on the answer to this question, who is Jesus? Because to me, a Christian means to be a Christ one. So if, if we know who Jesus is and what his life is about, then we can answer that question. And of course, uh, as, as Jesus asks this question, he doesn't really, he's not asking like what his name is, but he's really talking about what his life is about. Just like if you saw uh, a crowd of people around a person somewhere public, and you see people flocking and TV cameras and reporters all trying to talk to this person and interview them and uh, find out what they have to say, you would ask, who is this person? You don't want just their name. You want to know what, what gives them cause to cause so much stir. Why is it so many people are giving attention? What is this person about that they have attracted this interest? Well, and that's the question Jesus poses and one that the disciples must answer for their own life as well as for the effectiveness of their ministry. Um, as, as we start in this passage, it's very interesting, and we won't spend a lot of time on this, but it says that, um, that Jesus uh, was alone praying. Uh, and if you remember the context or the background behind leading up to this story, Jesus had sent the 12 out on a short-term missions trip, uh, sent them out to do ministry in his name, and they come back with lots of great stuff to tell. They had a great ministry experience, and Jesus... Uh, wanted to take them apart from the crowd for a time of rest and training and renewal. And as they'd gone to do that, uh, they, they get across the lake and the crowd meets them, and they're not initially able to get that alone time. 
And Jesus uh, teaches, he heals, and he feeds the 5,000. But now he sent the crowds away, and Jesus is alone praying with the disciples. And uh, in Luke, when, when Luke mentions that Jesus prays, it's always significant. In other words, we're pretty sure that Jesus prayed like every day, you know. Uh, and, and Luke could start every passage with, well, and Jesus was praying, and then, right? Uh, but Luke highlights the times when Jesus prays because they are significant mile markers in Jesus' ministry. The last time that Jesus uh, was noted as praying was when he spent the whole night in prayer before uh, calling and appointing the 12 disciples as apostles. So fast forward, and now he's called them, he's been training them, he's sent them on a short-term missions trip, and now Jesus is praying again as he's about to uh, give them this pop quiz, and no doubt he's praying that they will get the answer right. Um, and the, of course, the question is, who, who is Jesus? Who am I? Right? That's, that's what's at stake. And uh, he wants to make sure that they're clear about why Jesus came and what his mission is really about. Uh, so he asks the question, who do the crowd say that I am? And he starts there. What's public opinion? What's the, what's the word on the street about who I am? Um, and so they answer, John the Baptist some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets of old. Interestingly, this is pretty much the same answer that Herod had given at the beginning of chapter 9, uh, when it says, Herod the Tetrarch heard all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. So um, this is a common answer. Uh, Jesus uh, in the eyes of the crowd, was a prophet. Uh, and not just a small prophet, but to put him in the likes of people like Elijah is like the big leagues. Like, you know, if you collect the prophet, you know, prophet cards, <laughs> like everybody wants Elijah, right? Uh, nobody really cares so much about Habakkuk, but Elijah, that's, that's like a real prophet, right? And of course, fresh on their minds would have been the ministry of John the Baptist, who, uh, who they identified rightly as a prophet. So um, that's their answer. Uh, and, and really, what did the crowd, what were they thinking? Or why was it that they attributed to Jesus' ministry one of a prophet? Uh, and were they wrong in doing that? Well, uh, the answer in, in one level was correct, but, but as we'll see, was inadequate. Uh, there were things about Jesus that were very prophetic. And when they, when they gave him that label, what did the crowd mean by that? What was their concept of what a prophet was? Well, a prophet was, was in its simple job description, a prophet was somebody who spoke the words of God. They were men who would go off and they would go to very remote wilderness places and they would spend huge amounts of time alone seeking God and hearing a message from him. And once they got a message from God, they would go deliver that word from God to the people. And uh, throughout the Old Testament, the messages they got were often a little bit harsh. It was usually not things like, Merry Christmas. <laughs> it was more things like, you sinners, God's about to judge you and rain down wrath and destruction upon you. And so the, the prophets certainly had a reputation as being people who spoke very strongly the words of God, mostly around the subjects of repentance, calling people away from their rebellious ways 
and into a place where they were following and seeking and searching for God. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, uh, the people of Israel had not done very well in following God. And they had instead worshipped idols and had committed all kinds of sinful things. And the prophets were continually calling them to, to destroy their idols, to clean up their lives, and really to call them to back to a, a religious fervor or diligence to follow God and worship Him alone. Um, uh, for them, the, in, in the prophetic realm, the main problem that Israel dealt with was sin and idolatry, which is true. And their solution was to, to repent and turn away from those things and back to God, to deal with their own sin by repenting and seeking God. And certainly Jesus did that. So they're not wrong in answering that Jesus is a prophet. Um, Jesus certainly spoke for God. Uh, in fact, in John chapter 7, Jesus says, I never say anything of my own. I only say what the Father has given me. And that's a prophetic role. I hear from the Father and I speak those things to the people. So in that sense, Jesus was, was a prophet. Um, Jesus, on a couple accounts in the Gospels, not often, but a couple times, he uses that word repent. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, so in that sense, Jesus' role was in line with the prophets. But when you really look closely at Jesus' ministry, uh, he wasn't a very good prophet. Like if I was to rank and grade Jesus on the whole prophet scale, I would not put him in the class of an Elijah or an Isaiah or a Jeremiah. right? Because really Jesus' message was kind of prophetically anemic. right? Uh, he is not going around calling down the wrath and judgment of God on people. Like any good prophet, you gotta you gotta have an art for this, right? You gotta know how to talk about a hundred different ways that God's going to destroy you. Right? That's the gift of a prophet. Right? And Jesus, instead of calling down wrath and judgment, is going around forgiving people all the time. Well, the prophets didn't do that, right? So there's a very clear sense that Jesus, although he could be classed as a prophet, there's something about his ministry that really was not very prophetic, right? That was, in fact, in a different really vein or track than what the prophets had been. Um, and, and certainly, uh, in Jesus uh, asking the disciples, he doesn't say, you know, do you agree with them? Right? Jesus was looking for something more. And had the disciples only saw him as a prophet, there would be a problem. Because Jesus' ministry was, was in many respects far beyond the ministry of the prophets. And we'll see in a minute why. Um, so Jesus uh, turns the corner. He says, okay, that's who the crowd says. But then he says to them, who do you say that I am? Uh, who do you think I am? Am I simply a prophet, another Elijah that's come to call people to repentance and to turn away from their idols? Or do you see me in a, a role that's more than that? Well, of course, we know Peter says, um, and answers for the disciples. Uh, you, are, you are the Christ of God, literally. You are the Christ of God. You are, um, you are Christ from, from God. Well, we need to ask what they meant by that. Okay, just like the crowd had their concept of what a prophet was, it's important for us to know what, uh, what the, the apostles, the twelve, thought when they said to Jesus, you are a Messiah. Now, Jesus affirms that their answer is correct. 
So whereas uh, he, he, you know, he, he, would, he would give the crowd a failing grade on the quiz, uh, he gives the disciples a passing grade because he was Messiah. And Jesus affirms it. He's, he warns them, don't, don't be spreading this around. Don't tell people. It's true, but it's not the time to public, publicly uh, proclaim that yet. Um, and part of the reason was because Jesus knew that their idea of what Messiah was needed altering. So what exactly did they think about when they thought of, Messiah, uh, of Christ, the Messiah? And of course, uh, a quick, real quick Greek lesson. You know the word Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, right? Everybody know that? Well, if you don't, you do now. Okay, you write that down. I learned something in church today. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, and both words simply mean an anointed one. And actually, the Greek word could actually mean the smeared one, right? So if your kid goes out and falls down in the mud and comes in all smeared with mud, you would say he's a Messiah, okay? He's smeared, right? He's, he's Christ. He's smeared with mud. Okay? There was nothing particularly religious about the Greek term Christ. Uh, but it, uh, that was the Greek word for this concept of Messiah. And in the Old Testament, there were two groups of people who were anointed as a means of consecrating them to their office. The first would be the priest, and the second would be the king. And uh, as the term evolved, uh, anybody could be anointed, but there was only one who was the anointed, and that was the king. And uh, in, in the, in the uh, Old Testament concept, the anointed one really referred to the king as God's appointed ruler over the people. So that's what a Messiah was. Uh, in the actual Old Testament, if you read through the Old Testament, you won't see a lot of references to the Messiah. Right? Uh, the, the inferences in the Old Testament to the coming Messiah are very subtle and not so blatant and obvious. And of course, there's tons of scripture in the Old Testament that points to Christ and his, his messianic role, his kingly role. Uh, but during the Old Testament, that wasn't a huge theme. Why? Well, because they had a king, right? It would, be, it would have been a little awkward for people to be wanting a Messiah when they had King David, right? There would be no point in that. Uh, and as David's line played out, uh, there was no, no need or sense that they needed to get a king because they had one. Later, after the exile, when the kings were pretty well done with, the people were pretty done with the kings, right? And so they weren't actually looking for a king then either. But uh, after the writing of the Old Testament, between the uh, last writing of the Old Testament book and the coming of Christ, um, Israel as a nation comes under the, the Maccabean revolt, a uh, family who uh, broke the powers and re reestablished Israel as a kingdom. And during that time, there started to be talk about Messiah. And they started looking through the Old Testament and they saw these promises that God would send uh, a king after the line of David who would rescue and restore Israel. Uh, both the Maccabees and the Hasmonean dynasty that grew out of that um, were clearly not the Messiah. And the people actually didn't like those kings. Okay? They had a king and they knew they needed a king, but they didn't want those kings. Right? They were not that great. But the talk began to grow. When is God going to send the Messiah, the promised one? Right. So when, when, the, when the disciples identify Jesus as Messiah, they are identifying Jesus as uniquely not just one of a group of prophets, 
nor one of a group of kings, but as a uniquely one-of-a-kind deliverer sent from God. And in that sense, the, the disciples were dead-on accurate. Okay? Jesus was that. Uh, he was not just <clears throat> one in a long line of rescuers or deliverers. He was one-of-a-kind, one-and-only, sent from God as rescuer and deliverer. Uh, but, of course, <clears throat> the downside of what the, the disciples, as, as, as well as Israel in general at that time, would have understood is they saw this Messiah as one who would really reestablish a kingdom like David's, a king who would come and who would overthrow the Roman Empire and who would reestablish a power base in, is, in, in Jerusalem and would reset a kingdom much like uh, David's kingdom. Um, and in that sense, they were wrong. Uh, and if that was the kind of Messiah Jesus was, then he failed miserably, right? And, and uh, Jesus makes it very clear in his answers, you're right, I'm the Messiah, but I'm not the Messiah you think I am. I am not coming as a political deliverer. I am not going to overthrow Rome. And in fact, he says to them, the very first thing he responds to them, he says simply, um, he says, the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things. He will be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. Who were these three groups? Well, these were the three groups of leading uh, Jews who made up the Sanhedrin, <coughs> the, uh, the ruling body in Israel. Jesus says to them, okay, I know you got this idea that I'm going to rule the world, or at least rule Israel. But here's the reality. The power base in Jerusalem is going to reject me. Right? The people that I would need to win over in order to rule and lead and set up a new kingdom will hate me and will ultimately kill me. Right? That's not the kind of Messiah I have come to, to be. That is not what I mean by the word Messiah. Um, it's interesting, uh, when, you, when you look at this, it's interesting that the crowds did not identify Jesus as Messiah. Uh, now, there are actually a couple instances isolated where, at, at brief moments, the, the crowd began to get messianic hopes about Jesus. Uh, for example, at the triumphal entry, uh, they're heralding him as their king. A couple other little incidents where they try to force him to be king. But for the most part, the crowd doesn't really uh, call or claim Jesus as Messiah. And that's kind of surprising because this is at a time when pretty much any guy who came along who, who grabbed the crowd's attention uh, could marshal huge support by saying, I'm the Messiah. And these guys came and went regularly, right? Uh, why was it they did not uh, try to, you know, make Jesus a Messiah? Why is it they didn't see him that way? Well, I think one reason is that Jesus was far too unpolitical in his ministry. Right? Jesus was not going around trying to start a revolution. And the crowd realized if Jesus is a Messiah, he's going to be a pretty pathetic one, right? Because he's, he's not revolutionary enough, right? He's, he's too spiritual, He's not preaching and ranting against Rome, right? He's not marshalling troops. He's got these 12 fishermen. I mean, what kind of Messiah is that, right? You're going to, like, fish him to death, right? You're going to take over Rome with nets? Um, 
Jesus didn't project this messianic king revolutionary image. So the crowds didn't see him as a Messiah. And where the disciples saw him as a Messiah, they were misdirected. And Jesus, while affirming his Messiahship, paints it in a much different light. And he says to them, the Son of Man must suffer, he must be killed, he must rise again on the third day. Uh, in, in, the pro, in, the, in the prophets of the Old Testament, they looked for this deliverer. But if you read the prophecies very carefully, you will see that ultimately the deliverer would be not a great military leader, but what? A suffering servant, right? Uh, Isaiah is spelling it out most succinctly and clearly in Isaiah 53. Uh, he paints this picture of the deliverer this way. He says, he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And clearly Jesus cast his kingship, his role of Messiah, in that light. Right? Now, we know that the disciples just could not get this, Right? And, of course, we get it, and we, looking back, we know the cross, and we know what the cross did. But for the disciples in, in Jesus' day, they, could not, they just could not conceive of a Messiah that would be rejected by Israel and its leaders. Right? They could not imagine a Messiah, a king, who would uh, institute his kingdom by dying. And, of course, it doesn't take much imagination to realize why that would be so hard for them to figure out. Um, what was it about their worldview that made this kind of Messiah impossible? Well, I think uh, it's not hard to see that, as I said. And um, at the root of the problem is that the disciples, along with the rest of Israel, really had the wrong idea about what the world's problem was. Um, did you ever wonder what the job of a king is? Uh, what exactly, and, and, and a Messiah is a king, right? What's the job of a king? Uh, well, thanks to the internet, you know, you need to know something, you look it up, right? You Google it. Well, here's one definition somebody came up with. The king's job um, was to rule, uh, rule the kingdom, keep the peace, take the taxes, have lots of women, get lots of entertainment through jesters and wives, Manage an army, forge alliances, uh, make sure the vassals are loyal, go to war with others, and take all the land they can get. Okay. That would be one view of a king, right? And, and oftentimes we picture a king as somebody who gets all the benefits and spoils of war, right? Who gets to wear the crown, who gets all the best-looking girls, and, uh, and, and all the wealth, right? And that would be one way to, to view what a king is, what their job is. But really... As somebody more wisely writes, 
Uh, a king had total responsibility for running his kingdom. Generally speaking, a good king was supposed to guarantee the prosperity of his kingdom. Um, and it's true of leadership today in any form. Ultimately, a leader or a king is, is ultimately a person who solves, solves the world's problems, right? Now, you know, we love to chat and talk and get together over lunch, and we can solve all the world's problems because we know what would fix everything, right? And if they would just put us in charge, the world would be a better place. Amen? Because um, we have opinions, and we know what would fix things, right? Um, and the assumption behind that is that, that is what, that's what a ruler does. And certainly that's the idea they had behind a Messiah. The Messiah would be one who would come and solve the world's problems. And there's truth in that. Right? And Jesus would agree, yes, that's what I come as Messiah. I am coming to fix the world's problems. The problem, though, is that the disciples had the wrong idea of what the world's problems were. Uh, they were convinced uh, that the real problem in the world was Rome, right? If you just get rid of Rome, the world will be a better place, right? If you just set up a king like David, the world will be a better place. Uh, that will fix everything. Um, and so they couldn't wrap their minds around a Messiah who would, who's going to solve the world's problems by dying, that just doesn't seem very effective. And of course, Jesus, in his answer, claims and proclaims that the root of the world's problems is something radically different than that. Right? The real problem was not Rome. The real problem was what? Sin. Right? Sin. Jesus had to suffer and in fact, it uses the word Jesus says. He doesn't just say that the Son of Man will suffer. He says it is necessary. It is essential. It is an absolute must that the Son of Man must die. Why? Because the root problem of the world is ultimately sin. Um, the Jews, the Jews and maybe the disciples may have had this view of the problems of the world. They may have felt that the real problem was a matter of re religious devotion. And that's really what the prophets spoke to. But Jesus understood that the prophets, good as they were, as, as accurate as they were in proclaiming God's message, as faithful as they were in communicating exactly what God gave them to say, Jesus would stand before them and say, look, the prophets failed, right? All the prophets and all their effort, Isaiah running around without any clothes on, okay? One reason I really don't want the job, right? Um, he was unsuccessful in turning Israel around. Jeremiah was ignored and rejected. The prophets were killed, right? They failed in their mission. Why? Because it was not enough for people to reform uh, their morals and to deepen their religious devotion. In the end, they couldn't do that, right? And so even in Jesus' day, the most religious actually turned out to be God's greatest enemies, right? So the problem was not just a matter of religious devotion. It was not just enough for Jesus to come as a prophet and call them to repentance and to clean up their life. That would not cut it. Um, it was not a political problem. It was not a matter of overthrowing Rome and setting up a better kingdom. Uh, think about it. They, they looked at David as the ultimate king, and as 
blessed as David's kingdom was, and as good as and a man after God owns God's own heart as David was, was David's kingdom perfect? Well, far from it, right? Um, David uh, made huge mistakes, right? Sleeps with another man's wife and then has him killed. Um, David's uh, one of his sons rapes one of his daughters. Another one of his sons. Um, you know, launches a coup and overthrows the kingdom. Uh, David's main general throughout his military career was an out-of-control, cold-blooded murderer, a horrible person, right? These are not, like, model kingdom kind of things, right? Uh, even David's kingdom was far short of anything perfect. And that's because the real problem was not a better king or a better kingdom or better rules. The problem was sin. And so Jesus makes it very clear, yeah, I am the Messiah, I have come to solve the problems of the world, but this is the problem. It is sin, and I must die to deal with sin. It is the only solution. Um, It is the only answer, the only thing that will solve uh, the world's problems. The Messiah must die. Um... Now, I know that's not, I hope, new for anybody. And we know that Jesus was the Messiah, the suffering servant, who gave his life for our sin. That that was the purpose of the cross. And we know the end of the story. We know he died. We know he rose again. And even now, we are preparing for the Easter season when we celebrate all that. Um, But let me apply it um, by just thinking through, real briefly as we close, uh, the problems that we think we have, right? And I want you to just think in your own life, what are some of your problems, right? And you don't have to you know, answer, but just think through some of the things in your life that you feel are a problem. Is there a sense in which we, like the, like the disciples, often mistake what the real problem is? Well, I think so. Uh, I would like to, but I don't have time. I would like to go off on a tirade of how we, we tend to think the problems are political, and that if we could fix government and, you know, ban gay marriages or something like that, that, you know, make the world a better place. Um, That misses the point of the real problem, doesn't it? Is that the problem? Well, Jesus would say, no, the problem is sin. Let's take something a little closer to home. Let me look at two areas. Um, The first one would be... uh, relationship problems, whether it be in your marriage or with any, any person you have relationship problems with, right? What is at the root of relationship problems? What is at the root of the problems you may often have with your spouse, right? Not that any of you ever do. I'm sure I'm the only one, right? Well, the world would say, and there's books on this, all kinds of books that say, well, the problem with your marriage is you just don't communicate well. Uh, which for me is absolutely true. That is a problem, right? No, I don't communicate well. Oftentimes don't communicate at all, right? Um, but is that the real problem, right? Uh, some would say, well, the real problem is you just have wrong expectations. You know, you just need to alter your expectations in your relationship and then everything will be better. Or perhaps, you know, you're just not getting your needs met and uh, you just need to negotiate better how you're going to get your needs met and that will fix everything, Right? And a lot of marriage counseling and a lot of marriage books and a lot of relationship books 
try to fix the problem on those levels and on those terms, right? But here's the deal. Jesus would say that's not the problem, ultimately. He would say the problem, the reason your marriage is struggling and having difficulty, the, the reason you have broken relationships with other people is because of sin in your life. And I agree with the whole sin thing. Like, I would love to say, yeah, the problem is the reason my marriage is bad is because my wife is a sinner. And if she was as good as I was, everything would be lots better. Right? Of course, she would say the same thing, right? Because the truth is, the problem is sin in my life. It is my sin. The bottom of it, the reason relationships are difficult is because we are desperately selfish people. And here's the deal. Learning how to communicate our selfishness better doesn't really solve anything. Right? Like, I just want to tell you more clearly so you really understand perfectly how selfish I am and how I want you to live for me. Right? Oh, yeah, that's going to work, right? That'll make everything better. Right? We are, we are selfish people, right? Selfish people. And the longer I live and the more I go down this path, and the more I am married, the more I, I just daily am, just see how selfish I am, right? right? How it's all about me, right? Well, how do I fix that? What is the solution for that? And here's where we even sometimes get into worse trouble, right? We think the solution to that is that I just need to be more, more careful and more determined and more diligent to not be selfish, and Jesus would say, whoa, you're missing the boat, right? I didn't come so you can try harder. I didn't go to the cross so you could try harder to be a good person. Right? Remember the question at the beginning of the message. What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, go to church, give more money, and be a good person. Is that the right answer? Not if Jesus came to go to the cross to die for sin. Right? Jesus says the problem is sin, and you can't fix it on your own. You cannot just stop being selfish. It is what you are as a desperately fallen, depraved human being. The only answer for that, the only cure for that, is the cross. Okay? Only Jesus can take our selfishness uh, and through what he did on the cross, nail it there, and put to death the wickedness of my evil self. Right? Um, the only cure is the cross. Um, and it's not a one-time deal, right? If you've been a Christian for more than like seven days, you know, you know this. You got saved, and yet yeah, Jesus came and he forgave your sins, and he wiped the slate clean. He made you righteous and pure and holy before him. And how long did it take before you went back to being selfish again? Like 10 seconds, right? Every day, you know, do you get up in the morning and go, today I've conquered selfishness, I dealt with it yesterday, not going to be a problem today, right? That lasts for how long, right? Not very long, right? Because it's a daily thing. So how often do we need the cross to do its work in our life? Pretty much every day, right? Pretty much every day. Because we wrestle with these things daily, right? It is, it is a problem. And when our marriage isn't working or our relationships are broken, it's because that sin 
is not being taken to the cross, right? We're not laying it before Jesus saying, God, I need the power of the cross to come in and the work of Christ to nail that stuff to the cross, to die with Christ, to crucify, to put to death the deeds of the flesh, right? And through the power of the resurrection to be raised to a new life where I walk in his power, not mine. Uh, second, no, another one real quick, last, last one, marriage problems. Second kind of category of problems would be maybe moral problems. Uh, moral problems being a broad class of all of those things that are essentially idols, right? Lust, sexual addictions, cravings and longings for material things. Uh, essentially, moral problems means anything that I look to to make me happy other than God, right? So the things that I pursue in life that I believe, you know, if I don't get this thing, if I don't get this relationship, if I don't get this substance, if I don't get this material possession, I can't really be fully happy. Right? And so I'm turning to those things to provide for my happiness and to care for me and to meet my needs rather than God. So it can be money. It can be material wealth. It can be comfort. It can be food. It can be any kind of number of addictions. Anything that we have essentially made an idol in place of God to sustain us and care for us. And those would be moral problems. Um, what is at the root of those problems? Well, oftentimes we look at it this way. Well, I came to Christ, Jesus saved me, and I, I, you know, I've been crucified with Christ, and now all I need to do is have more self-discipline and I can overcome these problems. Right? How's that working for you? Right? Now, some of you who are very self-disciplined, uh, like Paul, you know, you wear the whole wool underwear and you beat yourself every morning. You may be quite successful externally in conquering those idols where you're not drinking, you're not doing drugs, you're not sleeping with prostitutes, and you could feel quite good about yourself. But if you were honest with yourself... Have you, has the craving gone away? Right? Is the desire for evil things gone? Well, I know in my, my life, it's not that easy, right? Well, where I can discipline myself externally, my heart still craves those things instead of God. And as those things come before me, how easily my head and my eyes are turned to those things. Right? How easily. Why? Because the... The problem is the, the wickedness of my sinful heart. How can I deal with that? Can I just be more self-disciplined and conquer that? Well, I don't know about you, but speaking from personal experience, that has never worked for me. Right? Never. I have never conquered one single uh, wrong desire in my life through self-discipline. Why? Because it is a root of sin that goes to the very character and depths of who I am as a person. Right? We are sinful people. Jesus came, he forgave us. But the process of transforming our lives into people who are like him is a long process. Forgiveness is instant. Transformation takes a lifetime. How are we transformed? Well, by taking those things continually to the cross. So an evil desire comes into my life. I have an option. I have a choice. I can think about that evil desire. I can, I can play with it. I can entertain it. I can, I can enjoy it, even if not externally, 
internally. I can fantasize about it. Or I can immediately take that thing to the cross and say, Lord Jesus, I do not have power over this. This will master and control me. I will be a slave to this unless you nail it to the cross. Unless you take it and by your power allow the cross to tear it out of my life. That's why Jesus said this, right? That's why Jesus said, yes, I'm the Messiah. I have come to solve the world's problems. But the world's problem is single. And it is fundamentally sin. And in Jesus' first coming, that's all he accomplishes. That is all he accomplishes. is He pays the price for sin and he breaks its power over our life. Okay, I lied, which is sin. One last thing, okay? We talked about marriage, relationships, morals, but let me, let me just cover this one briefly. You may say, well, my problem is not so much my sin, but what I struggle with is, is the sin that has been committed against me. Um, and, and the problem is, in this sinful world, we can't get quite wounded and beat up by the sins of others, Right? And you may feel that you have been a victim and have been a victim and you've been wounded deeply by the sinfulness of others. Um, what is the problem? Well, the problem is uh, not just counseling. And you need counseling. Counseling is a good thing. Um, but the way you will find healing, the only way you will find healing is ultimately to forgive that wrong that's been done against you. Okay, there's no healing ever apart from forgiveness. How do you do that? Well, do you just try real hard? I don't know about you, but I can't do that. In my own flesh, I can't just forgive. The only answer is what? To go to the cross. Right? To go to the cross and realize how much we have been forgiven. And through that, it gives us the power and a capacity to then forgive others. Right? Um, all of life, it is all about the cross. Um, so what is a Christian? Well, I think Jesus would define it this way. Jesus would say, I am the Messiah. And the Messiah came to deal with the, problem, the world problem of sin. Therefore, if you are a Christian... If you are a messianic follower of Christ, of Jesus, you will be one who lives continually under the shadow of the cross and whose life is being forgiven, whose sins are being forgiven, and whose life is being transformed by the powerful outworking of the cross and the resurrection. Amen? As we close, just uh, bow your head and just before God, ask him... You know, what, what is your problem? <laughs> what is the thing in your life that you battle with? Um, is your marriage struggling? Are you struggling in other relationships? Are there idols and temptations in your life that constantly plague you? At the root of those things are things like pride and selfishness and greed and lust and hate unforgiveness and bitterness. Uh, 
Um, how have you been trying to deal with those things apart from the cross? Through your own diligence, through your own discipline, um, by trying to just be more spiritual and read your Bible more. And maybe you found those things just don't work. Um, what would it look like for you to take those things continually to the cross? Um, how can you be daily, as those temptations come up, be reminded, I need to take this to Jesus. I need to allow his work, his atoning work through his death uh, and his powerful resurrection break the power of this thing in my life. Um, how can you be taking that to him today? You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.